0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I was prompted to write a sermon on the subject of the fear of God, uh, in part because a member of New Horizon was speaking with me about how unbelievers on many occasions have told them how what the Bible says about the fear of God is a source of a major contradiction in the Bible. On one hand, the Bible commands us, do fear the Lord, right? We have verses which say, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And on the other hand, we have the Bible, our pastors often talk about how in the Bible, one of the most frequently repeated commands is, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Or we get the first epistle of John. God is love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. So isn't this a contradiction? And I've chosen Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20, as our text, because... Here in one verse, verse 20, is encapsulated this, contra- or this apparent contradiction. But we're going to read a little bit of a broader section to get the big picture before us. Uh, reading what you could say is the most awesome audio-visual experience anyone has ever experienced in their life. So we'll read Exodus 19, select verses, and then jump into chapter 20 and read the abbreviated form of the Ten Commandments there, but then jumping into our text. This is the word of the Lord, Exodus 19, beginning at verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day... In the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, Yahweh God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not... It And then comes our text, verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness, where God was. There ends our reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Father, thank you for giving us these words, this account of you meeting and establishing this covenant relationship with your people on Mount Sinai. Bless us now, Father, move among us with your spirit, give us clarity of mind to speak and ability to listen, and through your spirit be our teacher. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We commonly talk about believing in God or not believing in God. Loving God or hating God. Obeying God or disobeying him. Trusting him or doubting him. But it's not so often that we talk about fearing God. It seems a little more of like an uncomfortable way to talk about God. And maybe even in our day and age an unwelcome way to describe our relationship with him. And yet, Scripture contains hundreds of references to the fear of God and the fear of the Lord. And that means it's a very important concept we cannot ignore. So I want to look at, this afternoon at this subject of the fear of God with you through the lens of Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20. And we want to look, first of all, at the cause of the fear the Israelites experienced. And just explain that. What caused this fear? And secondly, Look at the kind of fear they experienced. Then the kind of fear that's actually expected in point three. And finally, point four. What do we do to enliven this fear in our own hearts? So first of all, the cause of the fear the Israelites experienced. Have you ever watched as the forces of nature just come bearing down in display of overwhelming power? I remember back in the spring of 2022, that derecho that came ripping through, and I said to the kids, it was a Saturday morning, I said, let's go upstairs to the second floor where we can see this thing better and watch this storm roll in. Probably only did that because Karen wasn't there to tell me not to. But it was far fiercer than anything we've ever seen before. 190 kilometer an hour winds, I didn't know it was going to be that bad. Tall trees bending, the wind churning and swirling, and fear struck my heart, and I said, guys, this is bad, let's get downstairs. And I looked through the patio door, and the fence went in this snake-like motion and fell flat on the ground. And the lawn furniture went in the neighbor's yard. And whoa, we were scared. I said, "Get away from the doors. We, something might come through the glass." And what was going to be something fun to watch struck fear in our hearts. Or think of an even scarier experience many had in 2018 as the Kilauea volcano erupted in Hawaii. Rivers of red hot lava flowing down this volcano, snaking their way down its side, over the fields, through the forests, onto the roads, into neighborhoods. Slowly but steadily, simultaneously burning and burying everything in its path. Plumes of ash and smoke ascending nine kilometers in the air, destroying hundreds of homes, burying roads, fissures and cracks. Form in the road and you get this vog yeah that's a word from volcano and smog vog kind of going up through the road the cracks and steaming forth creating this eerie look one lady who lived there reflected on what she was seeing and said to the local news anchor i never want to see that again but i would not want to have missed it either I never would have want, never want to see that again," she says. But I wouldn't have want to miss, missed it either. Why that mixed reaction? She doesn't want to see it again because she knows how small she is before that monstrous force which could consume her, and she was dead scared of it. And yet she says, "I didn't want to miss that sight either because it was spectacularly awesome, and it's etched in my mind forever." Well, this is very similar to what the Israelites experienced on Mount Sinai, as God established his covenant with them. There might not have been lava flowing, but there was fire and a host of other forces of nature slamming down against that mountainside. And this experience was far more overwhelming than a Dureka or a volcano. Yahweh God himself is descending on Mount Sinai in the most personal encounter he's ever had short of the Incarnation. He is present in those powerful forces of nature in which He created and which He controls. The technical term for this is a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of the glory of God. And look at this theophany for a moment. There are thunders and flashes of lightning. It's a sign of God's mighty power in the heavens above. Last time the Israelites heard this kind of thunder and saw this kind of lightning was with the plague of hail. The seventh plague, which was so powerful in Egypt, it knocked down not only the crops, but it stripped all the foliage off the trees, leaving them bare. Then there's the earthquake. Another sign of the supreme power of God, not in the heavens above, but on the earth below. None of us can budge a big stone, let alone a mountain. Run up to it and you'll not move it. It won't even cause it to tra- have a little tremor. But God can cause this whole mountain to quake and shake. Such is his power. Then there's the smoke. Verse, chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The only other place in scripture where we, refer, where we read of this, like the smoke of a furnace, is Genesis 19, verse 18, which describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham looked and saw the dense smoke rising from the land like the smoke from a furnace. And the fact that that same phrase occurs here in Exodus 19, to describe what's taking place at Mount Sinai, points to the fact that the smoke is a sign of God's judgment and wrath against sin. You see, God is about to give his law to his people. And that implies judgment because the law is coming to a sinful people. Romans four fifteen for the law brings wrath when it's received by sinful people. Israel's being reminded by the smoke that if you bring If you break God's covenant, you will face his wrath and judgment. Of course, accompanying the smoke and causing it is the fire. Yahweh descended in fire. Yeah, we're drawn to fire when it's confined in a nice little wood stove or campfire. But we're repelled by its heat and the intensity of a raging inferno, which is what the Israelites saw. And then there's the trumpet sound. Trumpets would be blown during stately parades to announce the arrival of a king. And now there is this loud divine trumpet sound because Yahweh king is arriving. All the forces of nature are simultaneously slamming against this mountainside in a mighty display of power. It's happening right in front of the eyes of these vulnerable Israelite campers. They're completely unprotected. And they're overwhelmed by the power of Yahweh God before them. After all, Yahweh God, their God, is the one who just devastated the world's superpower, Egypt, with ten plagues, and in an eleventh plague, buried Pharaoh and his army in the sea. And now he is personally present right before them, on this mountain, in all his power. Their tents offer no more protection than a produce bag offers bananas from your foot or a car tire they're filled with fear not only is the mountain quaking the people are quaking verse 18 they trembled their knees are knocking hebrews 12:21 tells us even moses is exceedingly afraid and trembling we can understand why they're filled with fear But what kind of fear are they experiencing? We kind of already know, but point two, the kind of fear they're experiencing. There are different kinds of fears, right? We've got the healthy fear that keeps you away from danger. Children, you've got a healthy fear, hopefully, of hot stoves or hot things. Or young people, a healthy fear of driving too fast in slippery conditions. Or there's the fun kind of fears that we like. Boom! Scare somebody or an amusement park, a ride, right? Fun fears. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is the sheer fear of dread. They are scared that they're going to be destroyed by God in his powerful judgment because God's coming down in his power and he's giving his law and they know they're lawbreakers. They've been in the wilderness for only a short time and after three days, they're whining about no water. After six weeks, they're saying it's better in Egypt. They know they're sinful. Now they're hearing God's law. God's law is good, but a good law applied to a bad people means death. You see, the law is a spotlight. It puts the spotlight on our sin. Spotlights don't clean up dirt. Spotlights don't help people who are struggling. They just highlight the dirt and highlight the one in the struggle. Romans 3 says, Romans three nineteen. we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's what the Israelites are having now. They feel condemned by the radar gun of God's law and are trembling in their boots. You know, we see this throughout Scripture. Whenever people have a close-up, personal encounter with God, they're acutely aware of their own sinfulness. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as soon as God came, what did they do? They ran and hid in the bushes because they were afraid to look at God. Moses at the burning bush, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Isaiah sees the glory of God. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm about to be destroyed by him. Give Peter, the early encounter he has with Jesus while in the fishing boat. Peter's response to Jesus after he's fishing all night, catches nothing. Jesus says, well, throw your nets out anyway. And he hauls in a catch so big that it sinks two boats. Remember what Peter says? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And you can believe he was trembling with fear as he spoke, sensing his inadequacies and his unholiness in the presence of the Holy Jesus. It's the fear of dread that the Israelites are experiencing. What are we to think of this kind of fear, though? Is this any way to live in relationship with someone you love? You can't love someone properly when you have that kind of dread of punishment and fear. If you're always living in fear and dread of someone, you won't flourish, you'll languish. That's an unhealthy fear, you'll wither away and die in their presence. It's like a child who's always fearing that his father's going to lose it and beat the crap out of him. That's not healthy to live with that kind of dread that drives you away from someone and puts a distance between you and the one that you're trying to love. And as we already said, that's what caused Adam and Eve to run from God, because they were scared, dreading his punishment. Brothers and sisters, this kind of fear is rooted in sin. Christopher Hitchens, one of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement of the 21st century, was asked by Fox News what he thought about the existence of God, or the possibility, sorry, of God's existence. And this is what Christopher Hitchens responded with. I think it would be rather awful if it were true. If there was a permanent total, round-the-clock, divine supervision of everything you did, you would never have a waking, of sleep, a waking moment where you weren't being watched or controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It'd be like living in North Korea, where you're under the scrutinizing eye of an evil dictator. Well, good news is this isn't the kind of fear God wants his people to have of him. It's not the kind of fear that he wants the Israelites to have of him. Verse 19, the Israelites are full of this fear, though, and they tell Moses, you speak with us and we'll hear, but don't let God speak with us or we will die. They're looking for a mediator. Someone who will stand between them and God. And Moses is going to serve as their mediator. He alleviates their fears, or at least seeks to, when he says in verse 20, do not fear. And then in verse 21 we read, the people stand afar off, but Moses approaches. He's going to mediate. But we're skipping over something in the second half of verse 20. Moses is trying to alleviate these people's dread, the Israelites' dread, He just told them, do not fear. It's going to be okay. But then he seems to contradict himself in what he says next. Do not fear, verse 20, For God has come to test you that his fear may be before you. Is this... A contradiction? In the same breath in which he tells him not to fear, he's saying the whole point of this theophany, this powerful presence of God, is to induce the fear of God into you, the people of God. What's going on here? Is this a contradiction? Absolutely not, because that would make God untrustworthy. You see, we just need to understand how language works and how words work, and then you realize there's no contradiction at all. Have you ever heard of contronyms? We have homonyms and a bunch of other nims. We have contronyms, too. And a contronym is a word, same spelling, same pronunciation, yet two completely opposite, even contradictory meanings. I'll give you a list, and you can see if you can figure them out later on, but let's look at just two. Apology is a common one, right? An apology is a statement of repentance where I acknowledge I did wrong. Or... An apology is a statement of defense in which you assert you are right and did no wrong. It's a contronym. Or the word left. How many people left the church building after the first service to go home? Oh, 20 left. You mean 20 remained behind for fellowship meal? Or 20 departed to go home for lunch, Right? same word can have opposite meanings how do you know which meaning look at the context makes clear what meaning is intended and it's the same with this word for fear it has a wide range of meaning can mean that fright that dread that horror or it can mean awe and reverence and respect it's important to note this spectrum but it's also important to note that both kinds of fear, the fear of fright and dread and the fear of awe and reverence and respect have something in common. You know what they have in common? They can both make us weak need, and cause us to tremble. You know, you can see something that horrifies you and you can have your knees set a-knocking. Maybe it's a volcano or maybe it's a spider, but it can cause you to tremble. But you can also experience something grand and beautiful and it causes you to tremble. Like the young man standing at the front of the church as his bride approaches and he's filled with trembling, overwhelmed by her beauty and, wow, she's for me, my bride. These are two things seemingly opposites which can induce the same physical response. Point three, what kind of fear, though, does God expect from us? Well, he expects this fear of three components that consists of three components. Awe, trust, and love. He wants us to stand in awe at his greatness. We look at the vastness of God's creation and we feel so small in comparison. and We stand in awe. We see God's mighty power and feel so weak and powerless. Someone said, you know, the sun will burn your eyes out from 92 million miles away if you look at it. And we expect to casually stroll into the presence of its creator? That's how awesome our God is. We say with David, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is mere little me, an ant of a thing crawling across the globe that you are mindful of me? So we stand, this fear of God involves awe at his greatness. Secondly, it involves trust in his goodness. Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9 use the words trust and fear in parallel. And we read in Psalm 34, 8 and 9, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want who fear him. Trust him and fear him. Go hand in hand. Or Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. So this fear involves awe, it involves trust, and thirdly, it involves love. Now what does this love for God look like? Does it mean that we send notes or text messages to God telling him how much we love him? Well, sure, if that's text messages and notes are our prayers in which we thank him Or the songs with which we praise him. But important, much more importantly in Scripture, the primary way that we show love to God is what? By obeying his word. Moses says in Exodus 20, verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Or positively stated, so that you will obey. That's what the fear of God leads us to do, to love him with a love that's shown through obedience. Maybe you want to open your Bibles to this one, but Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13, we just really see this filled out in parallel. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. Uh, and... Uh, maybe I have this reference wrong here. Oh, it's not. It's um, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. See the word fear the Lord your God there. And how? To walk in his ways, that's obeying his laws, and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Loving God goes hand in hand with obeying his law. Or think of what Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So summing up what the fear of God, our Heavenly Father, looks like, Charles Spurgeon says, We stand before God, not afraid, but full of delight. Like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth and stand in awe. His father's wisdom and be amazed. His father's power. And this child is happy and at home, but feeling, oh, so little. Happy and at home, but feeling, oh, so little. And desiring to please his father, lovingly and respectfully obeying him. That's the fear of God that he wants us to have. Awe, trust, and love. Now maybe you're thinking... I thought this was supposed to be the more positive side of our consideration of the fear of god but this isn't overly comforting to me because if loving god goes hand in hand with obeying him and yet so often my love is so lacking because i'm disobeying and i'm not trusting his promises the way i should i so often doubt him and sometimes i stand more in awe of everything else on youtube than i do on my god of my god maybe it means i don't fear him as i should or maybe you say, I'm living with the wrong kind of fear. I feel the weight of Satan's accusations, and I'm in dread of the punishment I deserve for my sin. I know I deserve damnation. Well, how do we develop, how do we enliven this holy, healthy fear of God? Point four. You want to develop this holy, healthy fear of God? you approach another mountain, Mount Zion. And there on Mount Zion, we find another little mountain, Mount Calvary, on which the cross of Christ stands. The author of Hebrews sets Mount Zion and Mount Calvary in parallel with each other in chapter 12. Actually, he contrasts them. But he does so to show us that Mount Zion or Mount Calvary is a mountain we can approach Why? Because when Jesus ascended Mount Calvary, carrying his cross, he was in essence breaking through that do not cross line that had been erected and put up at the foot of Mount Sinai that the Israelites couldn't cross. But you see, when Jesus ascended Mount Calvary, when he's going to burst through that do not cross line, it's deadly dangerous for him. His heart was filled with fear at the thought of doing so. Oh, Father, he said, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke tells us that being in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why was this such a fearful thing for Jesus? Because he is approaching the presence of his Father while filthy and covered in sin. Not his sin, but my sin, your sin, if you believe in him. In so doing, he's acting as our true mediator. But when you approach God covered in sin, you are consumed. And Jesus is willing to do that. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath against our sin. The darkness of God's judgment fell. The fires of God's wrath fell on him. The earth quaked as he hung there on the cross in the middle of the day. And he was consumed by God's wrath. But the good news is, the fires of God's wrath burned themselves out at the foot of the cross. And that's now a safe space where you can go and flee from the wrath of God. You know how it works with firefighters, right? When they're outside dealing with forest fires or grass fires. They're in deadly danger. What do they do? They light a fire in a certain area. And after it's burned out, they go stand on the ground that's already been burned. And when that raging flames from the forest come, they pass right over because there's no fuel for the fire left there. And that's the way it is at the foot of the cross. There's no fuel for the fire left because sin has been dealt with there. The cross, Mount Calvary, is a safe space. As we sang number 451 this morning, stanza 1. That's why we can sing it. Approach my soul the mercy seat where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet for none can perish there. You won't perish there because the fires of God's wrath burn themselves out. Jesus in so doing in going to Mount Calvary, breaking through that police line that prevented access to God, he 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 tore that apart. And it signified when the temple veil was torn in two, God's way of saying, I'm not off limits anymore. You can come into my presence. I've made a way for you to be cleansed of your sin. So as we conclude, brothers and sisters, each one of us needs to recognize we must meet God. Either we approach him at his invitation at Mount Calvary today, the day of salvation, and receive forgiveness. Or he approaches us on the day of judgment at Mount Sinai. And there is no safe space at the foot of Mount Sinai on judgment day. No place of protection behind which you can hide. God's wrath consumes all who are still in their sins. So have you come to Mount Calvary? If you have, then knowing that Jesus loved you enough to pay for all your sin, the filthiest, ugliest of it, he's paid for it all, knowing that will cause you to tremble with the right kind of fear. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. One who struggles and gets kicked down by his sin and beat up. Stanza two of that hymn begins with a twofold reference to fear. It grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. God's grace teaches us to fear by showing there's forgiveness at Mount Calvary. And we come to Mount Calvary and see how horrible our sin is how damning the consequence is, and how costly the rescue is, but we're overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ that he would experience that instead of me. And that causes us to tremble. Tremble with godly fear that realizes God's grace. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities... Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. God's forgiveness causes us to fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. At the cross at Mount Calvary, Jesus says, do not fear. Hell came to me there, and remembered The fires of my wrath burn themselves out there. Your sin is paid for, and I am a just God I won't punish twice for sin. But remember, brothers and sisters, the biblical command, do not fear, is only given to those who come to Christ at Calvary. Think of Sunday morning at the tomb of Jesus. The women there were told, do not fear, he is risen. But the guards did not hear that word because they did not believe and must remain in their fear. So approach God on Mount Calvary and know the awe, the trust, and the love of a healthy, holy fear. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed at your unbelievable... Love and grace. We look in our own hearts and at our own lives and we see the struggle we have with sin. We know the unholiness that can mark our lives. And to know that you are holy and pure and all powerful, the one who created nothing but good and created us good. And to know of our rebellion and then to know that you've come and sought us out and gone up through that do not cross line, that you, Lord Jesus, were willing to bear the wrath of God in our place. We are just overcome by your love and a sense of trembling at your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for this, and if there be any who haven't come to Mount Calvary to know that forgiveness and receive it, move them to do so today. In Jesus' name we pray.